Very good morning. Thank you for uh, the opportunity, Vinu, and uh, the leadership team who have entrusted us uh, with this wonderful privilege to serve you this morning. Uh, like Simon said, I'm in a really, really exciting phase. Uh, a new father, probably, I don't know how many of you have a child younger than 29 days in this room, but that's one of the privileges I enjoy, so thanks to God for that. Um, I am uh, doing a Bible reading this morning, and uh, my topic is uh, defining and being saved by the gospel. Earlier, uh, probably a couple of months ago, I saw a guy wearing a t-shirt, and his t-shirt had a logo. Uh, which said Abidas, not Adidas, Abidas. And I was staring at his t-shirt, I was wondering, wow, this is a logo I have never ever seen. I don't know if you've seen that, but I have never ever seen something like that on a t-shirt. Now, because I know Adidas is original, I could actually point out that Abidas is actually a fake or a counterfeit. Uh, if you don't know Adidas is original, you probably think Abidas is original and probably go to the shop and buy a nice Abidas t-shirt. Um, why I link that uh, to what I'm sharing this morning is because we live in a challenging time where I want us to picture the scenario in our churches as a yard. Okay, so... Can uh, I move one slide? Yeah, a littered yard, a littered yard. Now, this yard resembles in and around our churches or probably even the nation. And I was so delighted when Frankie brought that word, there's a healing for the nations coming. Because I just believe that India resembles a littered yard at the moment. Uh, a yard littered with empty cans, uh, bottles, probably waste, and a lot of other things which are unwanted. And these resemble a lot of other gospels that are doing the rounds. There are gospels which are masqueraded as, you know, dubious fallacies or false gospels in that. And some of the names which come up are prosperity gospel, and you all are aware about it, um, where there's wealth and prosperity which is pronounced. There are a few other gospels which are doing the rounds, and um, there is a therapeutic gospel which people want to hear what tickles their ears and you know it's it's those kinds of of words which are shared where um, you have Jeremiah 29 11 and John 3 16 those popular verses as the only portion of the gospels which are doing the rounds uh, so people feel good about hearing such gospels then there is a consumeristic gospel and I kind of Everyone in this room would be aware of what it means. It's, it's like you, we come to God because we are a consumer. We want things from God. It's all about my needs. It's all about individualism and uh, so on and so forth. There's a pragmatic gospel where uh, individuals would come up to a pastor and say, Pastor, I have this problem. You just tell me what to do. And the pastor would, uh, you know, share the gospel and kind of lead him from there to pray. But no, 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 pastor. I know all of that. You just tell me what I need to do. And that's a pragmatic gospel. Amidst all the gospels which are in vogue, and just like this littered yard, there was an initiative which was launched by the government, which was a Swachh Bharat Abhyan. I know that uh, many of us are aware about what it entailed. It entailed cleaning of land to clean the nation up. And I want to say that 
just connecting the Swachh Bharat Abhyan is very, very relevant for Christians in a way that our littered yard can only be cleansed by clinging to the gospel. The gospel. And I, and I just feel that the more we pronounce and proclaim the gospel, the gospel about God, and like we'll see very quickly, it will bring cleansing to our nation. It will bring liberation and freedom to our nation. And C.S. Lewis said this, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men to Christ. To draw men to Christ. To make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, then even the cathedrals, the sermons, the missions, the clergy, and even the Bibles itself are a waste of time. The whole universe is made for Christ, and everything has to be gathered together in Him. Mere Christianity. So I want to look at Paul's Gospel of, uh, of Romans this morning. Uh, so I'm going to be reading from the first 17 verses to get hold and grasp the Gospel. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to be reading uh, from verse 1 right up till verse 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, who, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's help I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, by yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Father, we come to you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We pray that you will bless this word and, Lord, sow it like seeds of eternal life in our hearts, Lord. That this word will benefit us profitably. That we will learn and, Lord, be changed. And, Lord, be, look, as we look at being saved by the gospel, would we be in a place of worshipping you, knowing what it entails being saved by you, O Lord? Therefore, lead us and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Paul's longest letter. And I'm going to look at 
few verses from this whole chapter. I'm not looking at all the 17 verses. I want to look at verses 1 to 4 uh, when I'm looking at defining the gospel. And I'm going to look at verses 16 and 17 when I'm looking at being saved by the gospel. So, the word gospel is good news. And a lot of this morning will be about restating the obvious. The gospel of God, Paul says, Romans 1 verse 1. The gospel of God is a gospel about God. It is a gospel from God. And it is a gospel concerning his son. It centers on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a gospel in which God has revealed himself in his son. In fact, the apex or the peak of the gospel is Jesus' death and his resurrection, which secures forgiveness of sins for us. This is the gospel in simple words because the gospel of God is good news because it, it has actually helped you and me who are sinners, who've gone away from God to actually secure forgiveness through what Christ has done and thereby coming back to God. The gospel is the proclamation of Jesus Christ and as we come to this gospel, um, I want to say that Paul keeps the main thing, the main thing. A lot of the, the examples that we saw earlier in terms of the false gospels uh, pretend to, to keep Jesus on the table but as a side dish. I went to breakfast this morning and I observed that uh, I purposely went there because I wanted to see what the side dish was. Uh, there was chutney kept there and a lot of times we eat idli, dosa and all these things and uh, there's chutney alongside which is, which is a side dish. And the point is that we don't come back from our meals, uh, very seldom have I heard how great the chutney was. Okay, the idli and the dosa take center stage, I should pronounce it dosa, married to a Malayalam, uh, Malayali speaking wife, so better get it right. It's dosa rather than dosa. Okay, so uh, dosa and idli are a great tasting and they take all the credit from the table. And never, very seldom do we mention that the chutney is the one which is the more tastier. Paul's aim is to keep Jesus as a gospel and not keep Jesus as a side dish. And I want to encourage us that in order to cling to the gospel that Paul is talking about in Romans, it's the gospel of God concerning his son. And his son is not a side dish. When we talk about the gospel, Jesus is not optional. Jesus is not something that you can bypass on the table without actually having benefited from him. And I, it's what he talks about in, in these first four verses. For believers, the cross is the summit of glory. It is our boast. And that is what levels us as Christians. It, it, it helps us with a leveling ground. It is our reason for boasting. We should seek no other thing or no other knowledge but the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who for our sake was crucified rather than go downhill into ungodliness through super smart inquiries and nitpicking explanations. We have a choice this morning. Whom do we see Jesus as? We must make our choice. Do we see him, like Paul says, he's the son of God, the gospel of God concerning his son, or do we see him as somebody else? You can see him as a teacher, and uh, people in the culture would see him as a good human being. Uh, people in the culture would see him as a madman, or you know, even something worse, and they could 
even uh, look at Jesus sometimes and, and call him a fool. But for us, as, as believers who've been born again, who've put our faith in Jesus, there is no other suitable title than what Paul describes Jesus to be. He is the Son of God. And we can actually, at his feet, worship and call him Lord and God. This gospel that we are talking about in verses 2, Paul says, fulfills scripture. It fulfills all scripture. So uh, there, was, there were prophecies which came beforehand, a lot of prophecies which are promised beforehand concerning God's Son. And we see that through the manifestation of the prophecies, Jesus actually comes in time and he fulfills the promises. So Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic promise. Jesus is actually the better Moses. We see Jesus is the better David. He is greater than Solomon. He is greater than Jonah. And Jesus is the promised Son of God. And we see that the whole of the Old Testament actually is pointing to Christ. It is a shadow of things. Um, I say this because this is vital, uh, what Paul says, the gospel fulfills scripture. There are a few voices going around today saying, do away with the Old Testament. Do away with everything that is in the Old Testament because it is a hindrance to proclaim the gospel to the next generation. And there are reasons given as to why we should reject and do away with the Old Testament. And friends, this is a danger which may, uh, we may very well be surrounded by in and around our settings. Because in our practice and in our regular day-to-day -day lives, as we live the gospel, the Old Testament can, and can very well be uh, of low priority in, in that sense. And in, in our preachings, in our churches, in, 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 in our own reading. And it's, it's, it's as part of the gospel proclamation, we read the Old Testament, we study the Old Testament, we preach the Old Testament, and we ensure that the Old Testament is very well part of our proclamation of the gospel. If we are to take that stand that the Old Testament is no longer needed, that it is at odds with Paul's gospel, then we are going against history. We are going against the heritage of Christianity. We are going against the Reformation. We are going against what Christ himself said. And we are going against what the Bible says. The Old Testament is very much part of the gospel because remember Jesus came to fulfill scripture and every promise, every prophecy was fulfilled by him. And the Old Testament is valuable because Christ is in there, is in there and we can find him in the pages and, and there are wonderful stories of how each character is a type of Christ. And therefore the Old Testament is not optional for us friends. The first question which I want us to discuss later this morning is how is the Old Testament the, a part of our proclamation of the gospel? How is the Old Testament a part of our proclamation of the gospel or is it not? I'll, I'll put on the questions at the end. Uh, there are four questions that I have at the end and I'll, I'll have them listed at the end. Or are we only New Testament churches or are we two Testament churches? And I think this is vital. If we want to be uh, defined by the gospel as churches, as individuals, then the Old Testament being part, very much part of our DNA and part of our fabric. In verses 3 and 4, Paul talks about this gospel and he says that Jesus came as the son of David in the flesh and then by the spirit of holiness, 
he was raised by uh, to be resurrected and this talks about two eras and you know what i'm talking about when you and me were unbelievers it is an era of sin uh, that we are living in um, it's it's an era of weakness of death and jesus actually in flesh walks into that era the old era as it were the old age where there is which is dominated by sin sickness and death and it says that when jesus came he lived as a messiah he fulfilled all that what god has promised he ministered to people he healed and finally importantly he died for you and me and then he he rose again and his resurrection has helped inaugurate a new era it's an era of redemption it's an age of of uh, power it's an age of the spirit and jesus sends the spirit to us a proof that god has fulfilled every promise that he has promised for us in scripture and today the messiah jesus christ our savior reigns in victory reigns in victory after having inaugurated this era this new era of existence through his death and resurrection the spirit of holiness has raised jesus to be the son of god in power that's an important phrase it doesn't just say son of god it says son of god in power because paul wants to tell us the jesus who became flesh for you and me was already the pre-existent eternal divine son of god but when he rose again he rose again to be son of god in power that means jesus was raised to a high rank of sonship he was raised to a new position of power and authority that he didn't have earlier in a way i'm not saying that lessens his divinity in any way he was always the son of god but his resurrection did something for jesus that he is now in a new form power and authority even as he is inaugurated this new age he is now reigning as not just a son of god he is now reigning as a messianic king who is both god and man who is both god and man and that is the difference between uh his jesus pre-resurrection jesus post-resurrection he is a messianic king he is now exalted to a new position and that's how uh peter proclaims isn't it in the book of acts he says he is lord and christ lord over heaven and earth and peter's proclamation is actually telling us who jesus is post his resurrection and friends the gospel is beautiful in a way that we experience conversion that means we experience god in a new way we come back to god and it's the event of conversion which so excites us it's the event of conversion which brings a new found relationship of god to us but i want to say paul's also pointing out to the already but also the not yet yes we have experienced god in a new way we have been converted but more exciting than the moment of conversion or the moment when we gave our lives to christ or what christ saved us is the future of the gospel the gospel has a future and it is a beautiful future just that there is a tension in it that there is a not yet to it but scripture more than gives us a tangible taste of what this future entails when jesus will come again and that is when our salvation will actually be complete 
And scripture talks about we, we are saved and we are being saved like Paul writes in Corinthians. It means that you and me are now part of a new kingdom. A kingdom where Jesus reigns as king, as the messianic king. And we, you and me, are now redeemed men and women. But not just that, that's not the end. Redeemed men and women have a glorious future with the never-ending and ever-ending uh, reign of Christ. And he's coming soon. And scripture tells us to be ready and to live our lives. Even as we've experienced conversion, there is so much more still to happen. So much more. If you found conversion beautiful, the not yet of the gospel is going to be indescribable. And you and me can therefore be excited about how many of our years we've walked with God. 17 for me, I don't know how many for you, having walked with Jesus. But there is a not yet coming when Jesus will come back again. And that is when the kingdom will be consummated, like we say. Uh, salvation will be complete in its full measure. I don't know how many of us make space to experience the power of this new age. And the not yet is the power of this new age. Uh, in churches, when we have times of ministry, when we minister to people through the spirit, we are experiencing the power of the age to come. When we are praying for sick being healed, when we are praying for uh, broken uh, relationships to be restored, when we are praying for uh, you know, doors to open, we are experiencing the not yet of the gospel. We are experiencing the power of the age to come. When we are breaking bread in simple measure, we are experiencing our un uni unity with Christ and we are experiencing the power of the age to come. When we are being baptized, and that is a glorious event. And in our baptism, we are also experiencing the power of the age to come. In our meals together as families, where the whole family sits together and eat, it's pointing to the wedding feast. It's pointing to the future of the gospel, where Jesus is going to be sitting at the table with you and me, and we are going to be feasting with him. And that is why, friends, as part of our proclamation of the gospel, it's very essential to have family meals together. Because it's telling the children, listen, it's not just a meal. This is symbolic of what is going to happen when Jesus comes again. It's symbolic of the wedding feast. Now, you, I don't know how many of you have family meals together. Right now, my wife and I take turns in having our meals because somebody needs to be with the baby. And I'm hoping soon that we will have meals together at the table. I'm looking forward to that. And if you aren't, may I encourage you to have meals together at the table. Experiencing the power of the age to come is being faithful in little things right now. Because when Jesus comes again, we will be in charge of bigger things. Children also represent newness. They represent the providence of God and they represent the joy of the future. For those who have children, it's, it's symbolic of what God is going to do in the future. And this is all talking about the power of the age to come. So my second question for discussion is how are we practicing or making space of experiencing the power of the age to come? And this defines us as proclaiming the gospel. Therefore, Paul has it, isn't it? And already not yet salvation, he says... It is not just the conversion that you are to be excited about. In Romans 8, he goes on to say, there is an ultimate rescue coming. There is an ultimate rescue from God's judgment and wrath. 
and deliverance into the eternal kingdom where the salvation which has begun will be accomplished. I love how uh, the Nicene Creed says, it says, He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. We look forward to life in the world to come. I don't know whether that has sunk in yet. For me, it's still sinking in that the gospel has a glorious future. And the gospel teaches us, because we are saved, or because uh, we have been saved by the gospel, it teaches us we are to look forward to the world to come because it is going to be indescribably beautiful. I love how, uh, uh, what Frankie bought, but Revelation 21, 22, if you have time, just go back and read. It says, there will come a time when he will come and wipe every tear. Where will, there will be no mourning, no crying, no pain in Revelation 21. And Revelation 22 says, we will see his face. Moses saw the back of God. Paul was blinded at the sight of God. John fell at his feet, worshipping him. But all of that will culminate in you and me, the bride of Christ who are saved, will actually have the opportunity to see Jesus and to see his face when he comes again. And there will be no night, the Bible says. There will be no need of the light of the lamp or even the sun, for the Lord will be our light and we will reign forever and ever with him. Revelation 22, the gospel has a glorious future. How does it change the way we live now? And how do we make space to experience the power of the age to come? Saved by the gospel. And I'm jumping over to verses 16 and 17. In these verses, Paul's theme for the first eight chapters of Romans is encapsulated. It says, we are saved by the gospel. And not just the gospel, it says, we are saved by the gospel of righteousness. And I put it down there. The gospel has a power to save anyone because of the revelation of the righteousness of God. Because of the revelation of the righteousness of God. When we preach Jesus, God's own power is unleashed. The gospel has a power to save anybody, friends, because it releases God's power in saving the individual. You and me are only messengers. We cannot save anybody. Or we cannot be saved by any man, but we can be saved by God himself. Because he has revealed his gospel in power. And there is a righteousness that is revealed through the gospel. So the salvation is not just about being saved from sin and uh, sickness or death. The salvation is also having a restored fellowship and an eternal fellowship with God forevermore. And uh, Luther uh, this is, these two verses basically also led to the conversion of Martin Luther and led to the Reformation. But Luther's uh, conversion text, he also says this line, which I love. Uh, I don't know whether you can uh, remember, uh, most of you would have read Luther or some of you would, wouldn't. That doesn't matter. But Luther says, when I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Jesus, I don't see how I can be lost. That's true for you and me today. When, I, when we look at ourselves, our sin, our hopelessness, our rebellion from God, we don't know how we can be saved. 
But when we look at Jesus, we don't know how we can be lost. It's about celebrating Jesus' revelation in the gospel. You know, to actually be one with God, God demands righteousness, a right standing, which you and me don't have. God demands righteousness, and we don't have it. So God himself makes provision for the righteousness so that you and me can actually obtain and share in his righteousness through what Christ has done and therefore now be united with God. What is revealed in the gospel therefore is the righteousness of God. It's the right standing that you and me can avail of and enjoy in Christ. Paul says, this righteousness has nothing to do with your good works, nothing to do with the law, nothing to do with what man can offer to God. This righteousness is given purely on the basis of faith in Christ. All we need to do is put our faith in Christ. That is our eligibility criteria. Not our skills, not our talents, not our backgrounds, not perhaps, uh, uh, you know, we, or maybe we come from um, elite families or things like that. Nothing can earn us a place at the table except our belief, our faith in Jesus Christ. It was God's initiative, Paul says in Romans 3, that he presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to demonstrate his righteousness. It is God's initiative. It is God's initiative. And God is a just God. God is a just God and he's putting people in the right when we actually put our faith in Christ. There is a status that is given to us today. Not a status which gives us power, but a status which gives us gratitude of being called the sons and daughters of God when we put our faith in Christ. That is the status that we enjoy. And he's rescued us from condemnation that we stood under because of our sin. And he, he's declared us innocent because of what Jesus has done. And we are now actually sinless before God. And I want to just read us a quote. Uh, this is from the Belgic Confession. Don't worry about the document. It's a 16th century document. But what I found in this is a very relevant quote to today's discussion. Either all that is required for our salvation is not in Christ, or it is all in Him. Then he who has Christ by faith has his salvation entirely. Therefore, the text in yellow is very important. To say that Christ is not enough, but that something else is needed as well, is a most enormous blasphemy against God, for it would then follow that Christ is only half a savior. There is no Jesus plus. This and that and this and that. We can't hold on to too many things. And if you know that, that's uh, you know, for hanging, we hold on to one thing. I don't know how many people have survived by holding on to three, four branches together. We survive by holding on to one branch. And that one branch for us is Jesus Christ. And he is not half a savior. He is the savior that we need because nothing else can save us in the way Christ does. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? By his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in his righteousness. He has obtained for us in his, as we put our faith in him. 
by his death and resurrection. God credits righteousness to us because of what Christ has done. And I have this example of a credit card. I'm, I'm sure most of us in this room would have credit cards. Hence, I think many. But the, the principle about credit card is someone's entrusting you with credit, free. Okay, to spend, but you have a timeline in which you pay back. Coming to Christ through the gospel, that is what being saved by the gospel, is when God hands you a free credit. This credit does not have limits, like many of the spends on the credit card don't have limits these days. They try and ex extend your limit every time they call you for that. But God actually gives us a free credit of the righteousness of God. But there's a slight nuance, slight difference. While paying our, uh, we, have, we are obliged to pay back whatever we spend on our credit card. When we come to Christ, we aren't obliged to pay back because Jesus has paid for us in full. He's paid for us in full. We just get to enjoy the full, free righteousness of God. It's therefore, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I, and I want to really encourage us to enjoy this, this righteousness. We are counted as righteous and it suggests that we enjoy a status before God today because of our faith. So we are not made righteous by our faith. We are actually declared righteous by our faith. We are actually declared. It's a declaration of a righteous status that we enjoy before God. So which means that sinners who were not acceptable earlier are now acceptable before God. Sinners who were guilty earlier are now pronounced not guilty before God. And it does not also mean that we try to earn our way to God in terms of being morally good. And therefore we can say, and now I'm eligible because I have actually tried my best to be morally right before God. And I want us to say that, I want us to know that this legal declaration of the status of being right with God comes before we can pursue any moral transformation by the Spirit in Christ. If you put the cart before the horse, we get entrenched into legalism because we try to earn the righteousness of God by being morally right. In things that we do, maybe our lives are very tidy or we, everything's going well. Uh, our dis devotions aren't disturbed. Uh, our marriage is doing well. Uh, our church is doing well. In, uh, our serving to the Lord is doing well. Everything is going well. And therefore, we tend to believe that because everything is going well, I must be doing something right that God must be pleased with me and therefore I'm now eligible to have a right standing before God. Even that does not qualify us to have a right standing before God. Our tidy lives don't. But God has made our lives tidy so that we will be able to then pursue Christ's likeness. We will then be able to pursue Christ's likeness. So God's declaration is a basis for us pursuing Christ's likeness. And a lot of times we reverse the order, friends. So that's the third question I want to leave for our discussion. Does God's declaration precede any transformation of the gospel in our lives? Or have we actually put moral transformation before uh, this legal declaration by God so that we will be right in Him? It's almost like a law court scenario, isn't it? The judge has pronounced a verdict and it's legal. 
So the verdict cannot be overturned, it cannot be changed. It is irrevocable that you and me who put our faith in Christ are now children of God. We are absolutely righteous before Him because it is the righteousness of Christ which is imputed to us. It is interesting, have you ever thought about it? When judges pronounce a verdict, like pronounce somebody a criminal, the criminal does not become wicked because of the pronunciation of that declaration over him. He is already a criminal and therefore there is, that verdict just confirms it is a declaration. So by declaration or by God pouring out his wrath or pronouncing judgment upon those who are wicked will not make them wicked. We were already wicked. But God's declaration for those who are in Christ, for those who paid, put our faith in Christ is a legal declaration that you and me are now legally declared righteous and right before God. And that is a declaration which enjoys our eternal standing before God today and forever. It's a legal stand and it can never be overturned. And I hope that legal certificates are something that we possess regarding property or our children, which means our possessions are ours, our children are ours. Nothing at the end of the day can change the fact that that can be legally undone. We cannot take away our children from us because they are legally ours. We cannot take away our property from us in that sense because they are legally ours. Similarly, God's legal pronunciation of righteousness over us, which means that we are His forever. And sometimes we don't understand it, isn't it? Very much like how we eat food. We don't know how it nourishes us. Similarly, a man can accept what Christ has done without knowing how it works. Without knowing how it works. But this we need to know that a legal declaration has been passed a verdict has been pronounced that you and me who put our faith in Christ are now righteous before God. And finally, righteousness is a gift. We don't earn gifts. It is a divine gift granted to a person and it is something which is unmerited in many ways. I know many of us get gifts in this room but this is the greatest gift you and me can get. The gift of the righteousness of God. You know, I come from a Roman Catholic background and in the Roman Catholic Church, participation in the Mass and the sacraments were essential to ensure that you have a right standing before God and including penance to the priest. But one of the most liberating things of being born again, of being a Christian, of putting my faith in Jesus is I don't have to be entangled in those things to give me a right standing before God today. But I can enjoy the righteousness of God which comes to me as a gift without actually anything binding me to follow so that I can earn that gift because I can never actually earn that gift. I want to end with a scripture which says, 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Christ to be sin even though he was without sin so that in him you and me can be the righteousness of God. The gospel will bring cleansing not only to our lives, it will liberate us, but more importantly, it will liberate our nation of India. And this is the only hope we have. The gospel of God which will cleanse and bring us Swachh Bharat Abhyan as it were for this nation of India as we move forward. Yeah? So uh, I want us now to uh, look at the questions. If, if we can have a look at uh, the questions. Uh, sorry about the color, but uh, this is what we want to discuss. If you want to just move around in groups, uh, you know, just these are the four questions that I've uh, already uh, discussed in my sharing. 
The first question is the Old Testament part of our gospel proclamation. And if, if you don't mind, we have time, so if you can just move around, turn your chairs in groups so that we can have a discussion on these things. Uh, how does the already not yet gospel help us to look forward to the coming age? Because the future of the gospel is, is very important to the gospel, as it were, you know, in our being saved. What temporary saviors tempt us to make Jesus Christ half a savior? And there are lots of temptations around where we put our faith in and therefore giving Jesus the legal uh, title of only half a savior. And finally, does the declaration of God's righteousness precede our transformation? Because that declaration should actually come before any kind of transformation we actually pursue in becoming Christ-like. Okay? So four, four questions for discussion. And we've got 10 minutes. So...